All right, I want to invite you to open up your Bibles today to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2. And we're going to start off in verse 5 today, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. We're continuing our series through 1 Peter, and specifically we're in the third week of a little mini-series we're doing called Drawing Near to God. The context of what Peter's talking about is the Word of God. And so far, he's addressed two questions. First question we looked at is, how do we draw near to God through his word? We talked about that there's so much more going on when we're in his word, so much more going on than just studying the Bible, but we're drawing near to him. We draw near to him with confidence, with reverence, and with faith. Now, last week, we looked at what happens in us as we draw near to God through his word. We looked at two things. That we're being transformed into the image of his son and that we, or he rather makes us a new temple that is filled with his spirit and therefore we're now the permanent home of the presence of God. And so this week, we're gonna look at one more thing that he's doing in us as we draw near to him through his word. And here's the third thing that God is doing in us. He gives us a new identity. He gives us a new identity. Identity. Now, before I jump into the text today, I want to talk about what I mean when I say that we've been given a new identity in Christ Jesus. And here's the definition it's the fact of being who or what a person or thing is. So that's the definition the fact of being who or what a person is. And so, if I were hanging out with you and I asked you that question, I asked the question, What is your identity? How would you answer that? Think about it for a second. We're like, hey, what's your identity? How would you define yourself? How would you answer that? I think a lot of us would answer the question that we define ourselves by what we do most of the time with our time. I think some of you might answer that question and say, well, I'm a business person or I'm a student or I'm a mother, I'm a teacher, I'm a grandmother, I'm a grandfather. You would You define yourself and think about yourself by how you spend a lot of your time. I think some of us might answer the question in defining our identity in terms of our nationality. We would say, I'm an American. Or more importantly, I'm a Texan. Or more importantly, I'm an Aggie. Amen? That's how we, that's right. I love you guys. I love this church. That didn't go over well in Austin, unfortunately. Still others of you might define yourself... um, By your race, you might say, I'm an African-American, I'm an Asian, I'm Hispanic, I'm Latino. Others of you might define your identity by some aspect of your personality. You might say, I'm an introvert, I'm an extrovert, I'm an athlete, I'm an artist, I'm an academic. Okay, but here's what Peter does in these verses. And I want you to hear this. He's saying that since you and I have put our faith and we've put our trust in Jesus Christ, that you and I now have a new identity. We have a new identity, and this new identity in Jesus transcends your race. It transcends the color of your skin. It transcends your vocation. It transcends your personality. And this new identity is what defines you more than any other aspect of your life. And so my hope for you in this sermon is that one, is that you learn what this new identity is. Peter's about to tell us. And the other thing I hope for you is that you begin to view yourself primarily 
in light of your new identity, not just how you've typically been viewing yourself. And then finally, that all of your life would be an overflow of this new identity that we have in Jesus Christ. And so let's pick up where we left off last week, 1 Peter 2.5. Peter says, you yourself, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Verse six, he says, for it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone. He says, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now in verse six, Peter calls Jesus the cornerstone. We're gonna talk about that in in depth next week. We'll get into what uh, he means by it. But basically what his point is, is that Jesus is the perfect, unshakable rock that you build your faith and your life and your eternity on. He's the cornerstone that the church and that all the people that are in the church that are living stones, we are built upon Jesus, the cornerstone. Now in verses seven through eight, He's gonna address our new identity. He's gonna say, here's who you are because you put your faith in the cornerstone of Jesus. Jesus. But before he does that, he addresses non-believers. He addresses people that have not placed their hope in eternity on the cornerstone, the rock of Jesus Christ. So let's read this in verse seven. Peter says, this precious value then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, The stone which the builders rejected. He's talking about Jesus, talking about how the Jews rejected him. He said, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. Jesus became the cornerstone that the church and our faith was built on. And he says this, he says, Jesus is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. Okay, so what Peter just said, again, is for believers, for you and I, put our faith and trust in Jesus, he's the cornerstone. But then he says, for those who disbelieve, the first thing he says is Jesus becomes a stone of stumbling. Now, what does that mean, that Jesus becomes a stone of stumbling? Well, here's what he means by that. He means that when a person, when any person hears the gospel of Christ, Okay, when, when you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, and here's the gospel of Jesus Christ, that, that Jesus came to this planet as God in the flesh, he lived a perfect life, he died on a cross, shed his blood to pay the penalty for our sins, was buried, three days later he rose from the grave, overcoming sin and death. And so that if you trust into Jesus' work on the cross and his resurrection, then you are made a new creation. You're reconciled back to God and you'll go to heaven when you die. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, when a person hears that gospel, that good news, when they hear the gospel of Christ, they're gonna respond in one of two ways. They're gonna respond in one of two ways. They're gonna believe it which means they lay their life and they lay their eternity upon the cornerstone, the rock of Jesus. <clears throat> or they don't believe, they disbelieve. And when they, Peter says when they don't believe, what they do is they stumble over him. Now, what Peter's doing here is interesting. His point, here I want you to hear this, his point is that you cannot be ambivalent about Jesus. You can't be ambivalent about Jesus. There's not a third option. 
I believe in him. I don't believe in him. And there's a third option. I don't care. He's saying that doesn't exist. You can't be ambivalent about Jesus. He is the cornerstone. He's the singular cornerstone. And you can either put your faith in him or you stumble over him. But what you cannot do is casually walk around Jesus. You can't step over the cornerstone as you live your life. You either lay your life and your eternity upon him or you stumble over him, which leads to your destruction. And it says, for those who disbelieve, he becomes a stone of stumbling. The other thing that the scripture says is that for those who disbelieve, he becomes a rock of offense. A rock of offense. Now, what does that mean? Have you guys ever noticed that most people, and I mean most people, Love what Jesus has to say until he gets demanding or gets exclusive. And then all of a sudden they don't like what he has to say anymore. I'll give you an example. Jesus says the words, thou shalt not judge. And the world applauds that. They love that verse. And they say, now that's wisdom. We all need to listen to that. You'll even hear non-believers quoting that verse. They'll, they'll quote the words of Jesus. But when that exact same person that just quoted the words of Jesus, thou shalt not judge, when they hear his words, that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father but through me, then all of a sudden they're like, whoa. That's not real loving, Jesus. I thought we weren't supposed to judge, but you're telling me the only way I can go to heaven is through you? That's not loving, that's hateful. And they get offended, and they reject it. So what Peter is saying here in verse seven is that Jesus is either gonna be the rock that you lay your life and your eternity upon or he's gonna be the rock that offends you and you're gonna stumble over him. Those are the only two options. Now, after Peter addresses non-believers, he's gonna then turn to us, to those of us who have laid our lives and our eternities upon the cornerstone of Christ and then he's gonna talk about how for those of us that have done that, we now have a brand new identity. We have this new thing that defines everything about us. Let's read it in verse nine. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you're the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now church, more than your job, more than your personality, more than your race, more than your gender, that is what now defines you. That is your new identity in Jesus Christ. Now let's look at the first part of this. and We'll walk through it quickly today. We'll be done. Verse nine, he says, but you are a chosen race, chosen race. Peter's talking about our new identity because we've laid our life and our eternity on the cornerstone of Jesus. And the first thing he says is you're a chosen race. To understand what he means by that, you have to think about who are the original, who was the original chosen race? It was the Israelites, the Jewish people. The Israelites were people that, that God chose 
that God handpicked out of all the nations of the world to be his people, to love him, to serve him, to accomplish his purposes, to raise up the Messiah through them. He set his love upon them. He chose them to be his people. It says that in Deuteronomy 7, 6. Don't turn there, just listen. God says, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. And so the scripture is absolutely clear. God says that he chose the Israelites to be the people of God and he rescued them from slavery and he raised up the Messiah through them. But what happened? They rejected the Messiah. We know biblically that they rejected the Messiah. They rejected Jesus as God's plan to save the world. They were looking for a new kingdom, but they were looking for a new kingdom where the Jewish people were gonna reign. They didn't like a suffering Messiah that was gonna die. So they rejected Christ. And we know biblically that God in his sovereign plan allowed that to happen so that you and I, who were the Gentiles, could hear about Jesus Christ so that the message of Christ would go beyond the Jewish world into the rest of the world, and that's how you and I hear it. So what Peter's saying here, now listen carefully, don't miss this. Peter's not saying you and I have replaced the Israelites as God's chosen people, he doesn't say that. We don't replace the Israelites. But what he's saying is this, is that you and I are now also the chosen people of God. And that's incredible news. 1 Thessalonians 1, 2, he says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope and the Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. That's amazing. What this is saying is that when the Israelites rejected Jesus, he could have been done, he could have given up on humanity, he could have moved on, but he didn't. He chose to let the message continue. He chose to keep going. He chose to come after you and me. Great picture of that's in Matthew 18, 20. This is Jesus talking. There's red letters here in your Bible. He says, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, Truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. Think about how amazing that is, Sagemont, that at some point in history, when you had sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and you had run away from him, Jesus left the 99 and went after you. Then in a very real sense, you did not find Jesus, Jesus found you. And think about what that says about how much he values you, that he came after you. Now, you still had to choose him. You had to not stumble over him, but it could not be any clearer that Jesus Christ chose to come after you. And so you and I are now the chosen people of God. He says, you're a chosen race. And so I thought about this. Here's what I want you to do next time. You're in the doctor's office. You're at a new doctor. You know how they give you those really long forms and they always ask you what your race is. It's white, black, Asian, Hispanic. And then there's always an other. And I want you to write chosen. Because that's who you are. 
You're a chosen race. First Peter 2.9, he says, you're a chosen race. And then he says, you're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Now again, Peter's making reference to his relationship with the Israelites. He's quoting Exodus 19.5 and 6. He says, now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. And so God looks at Israel, who he'd freed from slavery in Egypt, and he says, you're no longer slaves. That's not who you are anymore but I'm gonna set my love upon you. I'm gonna choose you. And so now you are a kingdom of priests. You're a holy nation. You're a people of mine own possession. And then Peter says, that's what God has now done for you and for me. That we're no longer slaves, but we're no longer slaves to sin, but that God has made us a royal priesthood, a holy nation and a people for God's own possession. Now, What in the world does that mean? That we're a royal priesthood. That's a cool sounding name. That's great that I'm a royal priesthood. What does that mean? Let's talk about what what it means because it's really cool. Now again, Peter is quoting Exodus 19, five and six. And as I read that, I don't know if you noticed it, but Peter doesn't say that you and I are gonna be a kingdom of priests like it does in Exodus 19. Peter says that you and I are gonna be a royal priesthood. He adds a word. Why does he say we're going to be a royal priesthood? Okay, that's significant. Because back in the day, a king would have these special priests um, that would serve him. And they weren't just any priests, but they were called royal priests. Which means that they had special access, they had special privileges because they, they directly served the king himself. Okay, And there were two specific things that the royal priests did. Number one is they served in the literal presence of the king. So there were a lot of priests that didn't serve in the presence of the king, but the royal priests did. They were always with the king. They served in his presence. And two, they didn't just serve him, but they also reigned with him. That's key. They reigned with him. The royal priests help rule the kingdom. Talk about that in a second. So what what, what does Peter mean that you and I, our new identity, you are a royal priest? That sounds important. Well, it does have, in one aspect, implications on our life right now that we're still alive here on earth. You might have heard the phrase, priesthood of all believers. Priesthood of all believers. What that means is that for us, in Christianity, there's no longer this distinction and and chasm between priests and normal people. In Catholicism, that's still what you got. You've got these priests that have access to God and talk to God and make intercession for everybody in God and they, 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 they enjoy his presence, but then you just have all the normal people that have to go through the priest if they wanna have access to God. And what Peter's saying is that's not how it works anymore. 
That there's no longer a distinction between the important people and the unimportant people. There's no longer a chasm between the people that have access to God and people that don't have access to God. What did we learn last week? We've been made as a new temple. We are the permanent dwelling place of the presence of Almighty God. So in a very real sense, you are a royal priesthood because you now have access to God in the same way that any priest that ever lived has. Okay? So in a very real sense, that's who we are. We're a royal priesthood right now. But I also realize that what Peter's doing is he's talking about the role that you and I are gonna play in the new heaven and the new earth. And this is really cool. A couple of questions for you. Don't shout it out, but when, uh, when you die, what happens? Scripture says you go to be in the presence of the Lord. That when we're absent with the body, we're present with the Lord, okay? And that's where you are. You're with God in heaven until he returns. And then when he returns, <clears throat> scripture is crystal clear that he creates a new earth. He creates a brand new earth. And so the scripture tells us that you and I are not gonna spend eternity in a cloud with a harp hanging out with naked baby angels. That's not what we're doing. We're going to be on a new earth. It's going to be perfect without sin with him. Now I want you to watch what the scripture says we're going to do on this new earth for eternity. Revelation 5, 9. It says, and they sang a new song, saying, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and every tongue and people and nation. Look at verse uh, 10 there, Revelation 5.10. He said, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. Now watch what it says next. And they will reign upon the earth. Peter said, this is your new identity. You're a chosen race. You are the people of God and you are a royal priesthood which means that you serve in that today, you minister to the Lord, you draw near to the Lord, you help other people draw near to the Lord. But what that also means is that you and I are gonna spend eternity serving in the presence of God and you and I are gonna reign with him on the new earth. And I have no idea what that means, but it sounds pretty cool, amen? No clue what that means, but sign me up. Let's look at the last thing the scripture says about our new identity in Christ. This has blown me away this week. First Peter 2, 9, he says, you're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Go to verse 10. He says, for you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. That's that chosen race thing. Now you are the people of God, but then watch this. He said, you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's exactly right, amen. The last thing Peter says that defines you as a person that has placed your life and your eternity on the cornerstone of Christ is that you're a person, everybody look at me, you're a person that has passed Hence, received mercy. But if 
you've put your faith in Jesus, past tense, you've already received the mercy of Almighty God. In other words, Peter's saying that in Christ Jesus, this is your new identity. This is now what completely defines you, is that you are a person that has completely been forgiven of all their sin. Past tense, received mercy. And I want to tell you why that's important in terms of your identity and how you think about yourself. This is not everybody in the room, but I want to tell you about me. And I've shared this a couple times over the last several months, but um, there's something else that I've found that, that shapes how I view myself and, and shapes how I view my identity. Besides my job, besides my personality, besides what I do with my time, there's something else I found that I allow to impact my identity and how I view myself, and it's my sin. I have a really bad habit of viewing myself and thinking about myself in terms of how holy I've been in a given week. That if I've been really walking well with Jesus and I'm crushing it and I'm having a quiet time and I'm, I'm honoring and loving my wife like Christ loved the church and I'm not kicking the dog and I'm like, you know, loving my, I don't kick my dog. And I, I'm, I love my children well and I'm serving the church well and I, I don't get angry and I, and I walk in the spirit that I've found that I, I, that colors how I think God views me. I think, well, he must be pleased with me because I've been living right. But at the same time, if I haven't walking, been, been walking well with the Lord and haven't been walking the holiness that I'm called to, then, then that impacts how I think God sees me. I'm not pleased with myself because I'm not walking the way I should and, and it transcends to how I think God looks at me. I think, well, he can't be pleased with me either. And uh, guys, I talked about this a little bit last week, but there's even times when I'm, I am in a period of my life where I am consistently walking well with the Lord, but even then, again, Satan puts on the hat of the accuser, and he's like, oh, you think you're a good Christian? You've been crushing it for a few weeks? Do you remember that thing you did in high school? <laughs> or that thing you did in college before you started walking with Jesus? And it impacts how I view myself and it impacts how I think God views me. I cannot tell you how often I walk around thinking about my identity in terms of my sin. But I want you to hear this, church. What Peter's saying here is that, that you and I were once a people that had not received mercy but now you're a people that has received mercy. And what he's saying is that your sin does not define you anymore. Your sin no longer defines you in any shape, any form, in any fashion. Those things you did in high school, those things you did in college, those things you did when you were single, that really one bad thing you did that you, that, that you can't get over, that you struggle with, and that, that failure, that shortcoming that plague you and haunts you, when God looks at you, he does not even see them anymore. Some of y'all need to hear that. When God looks at you, he doesn't see them anymore because you or a person that past tense has received his mercy. And because of that, this is your new identity. 
You're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. And you have received the mercy of God, which means your sin has been cast as far from you as the east is from the west. And so when God looks at you, he no longer sees your sin. It's gone from you. You're covered with the blood of Christ. All he sees is a beloved son or beloved daughter with whom he is well pleased. And that's not who I say you are. That's who God says you are. I'll end with this. Um, One of the things I've realized, guys, is that in my old age is that words hold tremendous power. I'm realizing that. That words hold tremendous power. The Bible says that our tongues have the power in them of life and death. And the longer I'm around, I realize that it's true. People can say things to you and they can speak words over you and they can speak words to you and for some reason those words have the power to shape who we are and and how we think about ourselves. Y'all remember, check this out. Y'all remember that old phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones but words will never harm me? That might be the single dumbest, most inaccurate statement in the history of the English language. Every time I've ever broken a bone, it's healed. But there have been things that people have said to me. There have been words that people spoke to me and they have haunted me and they have stuck with me my entire life. I had a family member when I was nine or 10. I love him, still do, still alive. Hope he's not listening to this sermon. Um, I honestly don't remember the context, but I was nine or 10. I was doing something stupid, doing what nine or 10 year olds do, probably talking back or something. And he looked at me and he said, Matt, you're never gonna be anything in this life but a used car salesman. Now, look, no offense to used car salesman. Y'all are needed. Um, Bought one for my kid this week but he used it in a very derogatory way. And I adored this guy, still do. And as a, nine, as a 10-year-old little boy, that absolutely crushed me, crushed me. I desperately wanted his approval and I couldn't shake it. <laughs> I cried out loud, I'm 47, I'm still talking about it. This thing, this thing hung with me for years. You're never gonna be anything but a used car salesman. And I made a decision right then and there that I was gonna prove him wrong. I went to counseling, true story, sorry, a little confessional moment here. I went to counseling about five years ago to get to the bottom of whether or not all the things that I'd sort of done and accomplished in life was really and truly for Jesus or if a big fat part of it was to prove that man he was wrong. Words have tremendous power to shape our lives. Words have tremendous power to shape our identities. But in the same way that words can shape our identities negatively, words can also have a very positive impact on the way we view ourselves. Tell you one quick story and I'm done. A guy named Chris Osborne, I think I've shared his name before. Chris is the, uh, was pastor of Central Baptist Church in College Station for a long time. He was the pastor when I was at A&M 
So when I started going to church, I'll never forget, this guy walks up into the pulpit and first thing he said when he walked up, he said, open up your Bibles to the book of Matthew chapter four. He preached the entire time I was in college for four years in the book of Matthew. It took him four years to get out of the book of Matthew. Have you ever wondered where this is going, all right? That... <laughs> he preached from the Greek New Testament. That's what he preached from. These are English words. His was Greek and he translated it. But I'm telling you guys, the most powerful preacher I'd ever heard in my entire life. He was anointed. I got to know him later on and he kind of became a mentor for me. He's the reason I preach the way I preach. And about three or four years ago, I was preaching at a conference at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. I was preaching at their chapel. And I look out there about the eighth or ninth row right there in the middle and there's sitting Chris Osborne. Now, I don't know if you've ever had to preach in front of your hero before, but I got really nervous. Because he, guys, I'm telling you, he's, if you've never heard him, he's the best you've never heard. But I preached, and when I got done, he walked up to me. I was standing right there. He walked up to me, and he was crying. And he said, Matt, I want you to know that's one of the best sermons I've ever heard in my life. And he said, I'm so proud of the man that you've become. And I thanked him, and I walked back into the green room, and I cried like a baby. Here's what I want you to hear. Those words breathe so much life into me, so much value. And it it hit me like, if the words of a family member can have that kind of sway over us, if the words of a mentor can have that kind of sway and impact in our lives, then how in the world do we not let the words of Almighty God about us have an even greater sway? I don't care what the world says you are. I don't care who you say you are. I don't care what anybody else says you are. This is who God says you are. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into a marvelous light for you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Sagemont, that's your new identity. So here's what we're gonna do. Let's believe it. Believe it. Then let's embrace it. And let's walk out those doors and live it.